in this series on Sunday nights, we want to recognize biblical distinctions. You know, the, the Bible talks in 2 Timothy 2.15 about rightly dividing the word of truth. And so there's certain distinctions. And part of the reason we, that I wanted to do this is there's just a lot of confusion, even as it relates to different words in the Bible. And even when you talk about the different judgments in the Bible, there's a misunderstanding of even the judgment seat of Christ. People still thinking that there's going to be punishment or penal consequences at the judgment seat of Christ. And so even just making those distinctions, you know, what, what are the differences between the judgments? What are the differences between baptisms? You know, cause we'll, when we get to baptisms, we'll see that there's seven baptisms mentioned in the Bible and only three of them use water. The other four are dry baptisms. So, you know, when you typically, when you think of baptism, you think water and wet, but the Bible even uses it um, in a more generic way. And so that's some of the reasons that we're, we're doing this series. And so tonight we're going to start a, a two-part series, really making distinctions between justification and sanctification. We, we talked about the three tenses of salvation last week. And, you know, obviously one of the big differences between justification and sanctification is justification happens at a point in time. Sanctification is a process of time. Okay, point in time, moment of faith. We put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's, you know, you're justified. Sanctification, it's, it's a moment-by-moment moment walk of faith. It's living the Christian life. And so it, we're, we're going to make those distinctions next week. Uh, before we got into really comparing justification and sanctification, I wanted to look at just the word justification. And then I want to look in the scriptures at how justification is used in the scriptures. And I, and I don't claim that this is comprehensive in any ways, but I want to look at three different types of justification tonight that the scripture speaks of. And you've got it in your chart. I think I even left the top of the chart filled in for you, but we're going to look at justification before God, justification before men, and justification before self or self-justification, which is, which is still before men, but it's, it's something that we do in terms of justifying ourselves. But what does the word justification mean? Well, it's the Greek word, dikaiao, that's the verb form, and it means to bring out the fact that a person is righteous, or to simplify the definition, we can just say that to justify means to declare someone righteous. And, and one of the things that we want to make sure that we understand is this does not mean make somebody righteous. This means that they are declared righteous, okay? It's a legal term, and to kind of use a courtroom example, it's it's the judge slamming down his gavel, making a declaration. And so we know from the scriptures that God does this. The moment we put our faith in Christ, he declares the one who believes righteous. He justifies them. That's what the word means generically. One of the things we have to recognize is that the word itself does not just mean salvation from hell. Typically, when we hear the word justified, we think salvation from hell automatically. But if that's the case... God is said to be justified in Luke seven twenty nine, So you can see how it can't have that, that specific technical meaning in every usage. There's a general meaning, which means to declare someone righteous. And so in Luke seven twenty nine, let's go there really quick. We can, we can see this scripture. This is following Jesus speaking. In fact, he's speaking of John the Baptist. But the first thing, if you go back to verse 18, John, John is in prison and he sends some people to Jesus to say, hey, are you the one or are we supposed to be looking for somebody else? And Jesus' response, starting in verse 22, is, is, hey, go tell John what you've seen and heard. In other words, there's these miracles that I'm doing that were prophesied that the Messiah would do. 
you know, let those works speak for my identity. And then he goes on to describe John and his ministry starting in verse 24. And he says um, of John in verse 27, this is, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 28, for I say to you among those born of women, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then verse 29, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Basically, what you see there is, is they're declaring that God's ways are right. You know, that was why they identified with John's baptism. They weren't saying that God is not going to hell. I mean, you know, as a specific term. And just to kind of show that, that there's a, there's a generic definition for the word justification. We use the term this way to describe how a person is declared righteous by God. That's typically how we use it. I mean, when you think of the way Paul uses it in Romans 4, Romans 5, and and really elsewhere in Scripture, Paul, when he's talking about justification, is typically talking about justification before God. How is man declared righteous before God? That's typically what Paul is, is talking about. But there's other uses of the word in Scripture. Remember last week was salvation. We said, whenever you see the word saved or salvation, you always want to answer the question, from what? What are we being saved from here in this passage? And and the context should give you that meaning. So when Peter's sinking in the water and he says, Lord, save me, he wants to be saved from drowning, right? It's not saved from hell. And so we take the context and we allow that to dictate the meaning of the word. And so with the word justification, what we want to ask is, by whom? That's the answer to the question that we want to we want to get, and then each context should help us understand the meaning of that. So, justification by whom? In this passage, who who do we want to be justified by, or what is the justification speaking of? Justification by whom? And so, that's going to be very helpful as as kind of just some comments as we go into tonight. As a reminder, remember, there's really two unsolvable problems for mankind. We've got a death penalty hanging over our head because we've sinned. And then we have a righteousness issue. We're not righteous enough. We don't have a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. And so what justification does is it solves that righteousness issue. It shows us how we can be declared righteous by by the God of the universe who's, whose opinion is the only one that matters. And it's when we put our faith in Christ. Now, also when we put our faith in Christ, he, his substitutionary death is in our place. And so it takes care of both of those issues, the righteousness issue and the death issue. When we talk about justification before God, that's, that's why it's needed. You have to be justified in order to go to heaven because you have to have a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. And this is how we, we gain that righteousness is when we put our faith in Christ. That's what God has determined. So we're looking at these three different types of justification. And so your first blank, justification before God, is obtained when a person puts their faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And let's go to Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and so let's talk a little bit more about that. Having been justified is in the aorist tense in the Greek. And remember, that's that point in time action that we're talking about. And then you've got to go to the context. Is that a past completed event or is that something that's going to happen at a point in time in the future? But in this case, it's a past 
tense. It's a completed action. And it happened. The condition uh, is really clear in, in Romans 5.1 that we've been justified how? By faith. Okay, so God declares the sinner righteous when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. So when a person puts their faith in Christ, God justifies them at that moment in time, and it can be spoken of as a completed event, a done deal, not something that doesn't change back and forth based on behavior, but the righteousness is ours. And part of the reason for that is, is hold your finger there and, and go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. You start to study scripture and they all just start to tie together. They just all start to fit together in a beautiful puzzle piece. But 2 Corinthians 5.21, very familiar verse but notice it says this, for he made him, who, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, in other words, to be our sin bearer, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the way that that last phrase is worded is so key. You know, many people will say when we put, it, we put our faith in Christ that God imputes righteousness to us. I mean, that's what he did for Abraham. And that's very true. God imputes righteousness, but how does he impute righteousness to us? That's, that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21, I believe, teaches us. It's we become the righteousness of God. How? In him. There's this positional element that can never change about you. The moment you and I were baptized into Jesus Christ, not only do we possess God's righteousness, but Jesus is our very righteousness. And so it's not something that God gives and takes away right? It's a position that we are now in eternally and our righteousness is, is not based on some card we're carrying around. It's based on the fact that we're in Christ and we, we are literally the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It just gives us, you know, more security. It's kind of like if, if this is me and this is Jesus Christ, I mean, we are in Christ. And so if Christ is righteous, you're righteous, period. And so it's even more secure than just saying, yeah, he declared us righteous, but man, look out. Cause if you have a bad day, it's no, no, Jesus remains our righteousness. There's nothing that can change that. And so that's what we're looking at in justification. Go also to a couple of these verses, Romans eight 30. And just to kind of point out the completed concept of, of justification. So Romans eight 30, also in it, in an aorist tense, this, this point in time event, Romans 8, 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So again, you can be justified at a point in time. This isn't an ongoing thing, especially as it relates to being justified before God. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 6, 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, same concept here. It's, a, it's an aorist tense. First Corinthians six eleven. it's a point in time event. So in, in such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. That verb right there, justified is in the passive voice because it's the, it's the spirit of God doing that. It's God is the one justifying you. You're not justifying yourself. Okay. So it's something that's being done to you there. Obviously in Romans eight, it's talking about God doing the justifying. So it's still something being done to you. It's just the passive voice brings that out here. One of the, an interesting verse is, is Galatians 2.16. Go there with me because Galatians 2.16 
kind of sounds like a, a broken record. You know, if you read it like 10 times in a row, you'd be getting tongue-tied probably. But, but he makes it really clear, you know, especially to the church of Galatia who was really confusing how one was justified. They're starting to introduce error here in, in adding works. But in verse 16, it says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in, G- in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And you see, I've got this written up here. The first use of the word justification is in the present tense. So, so nobody can be justified right now by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Second justification is in the aorist tense. And so as we look at verse 16, it says, even we have believed. So speaking of Paul and those who have believed, point in time, done. They've been justified. But notice also the third justification is, is a future tense. And it's basically indicating nobody, even in the future, will ever be declared righteous by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And so it's kind of covering all aspects here of justification and what it takes to be justified by God, with God. And it's not works it's, it's faith. It's faith alone that justifies man before God. In fact, works don't even enter the picture. They hinder justification before God. They get in the way. They get in the way of that. Titus 3.5, another familiar verse. We'll go there, which says this, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And again, this word saved is an aorist tense, speaking of a, a point in time completed event. And then also Ephesians 2.8, you have been saved. We looked at that last week, the, this perfect tense. You, you have been saved at a point in time in the past and the results continue. You remain saved. You, you continue to enjoy the results of that. And so that's really our first box there is justification before God is obtained when somebody puts their faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Now, in contrast, justification before men is obtained when a person does a good work or works plural that someone else sees or hears about. Okay. So that I want to contrast that with justification before God, God God does not need to see good works to declare us righteous. In fact, there's no good works that an unbeliever can do where God would declare them righteous. It's faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. When we talk about justification before men, how do, how do men declare one another righteous? How do they justify somebody? Well, they've got to see good works. You know, you may be a great person, but if, if there's not something you're doing for me, I, I wouldn't know. You know, but it's, it's my neighbor that, you know, he sees that I'm busy and he comes over and mows my lawn. Well, I might say, man, Joe, I mean, he came over, I was busy, mowed my lawn. That guy's a good guy. And that's justification before men. Now, Joe may go home and beat his wife and I don't know about that, but in my mind, he's a good guy because he mowed my lawn. 
you know. Is Joe saved? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I can talk to him. I can ask him what he believes. But, you know, he may say, oh, yeah, you know, I go to church. I'm saved, but never be really clear. But I would still justify him as a good guy because he mowed my lawn. He's, he's done some other things for me. And so that's one of the things when we look at justification before men. In fact, we're going to spend a lot of time on this tonight. And in fact, it's going to feel like a study of the book of James. But I think this is so important to our understanding of the word justification that we need to spend time in James 2. Because when we get to James 2, and go ahead and turn with me there. Literally, if you've been exposed at all to the teaching of Paul, you're going to say, we got it, you know, Houston, we have a problem. You know, we got, we got an issue here because in James um, 2.14, and let's, let's just read the whole section. And then I just want to do a background and context to kind of, that's, that's one of the things that I find a lot of conversation about James 2.14 through 26. A lot of conversation surrounding that passage lacks context. And that's why there's so much confusion about it. So I want to I slow down. I want to go back to context. I want to look at word meanings, and then we'll start working through the passage. So give me a few minutes to kind of build up to this passage because I think it's so important in understanding. But let's read it first so we kind of know what the issue is. James 2.14, or what the potential confusion is. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Uh, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father, just, there's our word, justified, so we'll come back to that. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And so you have probably seen that passage before and realized that that is on the surface causes lots, lots of problems for people just in the way things are worded. So let's just kind of look at the problem. James 2.14c says, can faith save him? The implied answer in the Greek is no. It's one of the reasons it causes a problem. The implied answer is no. James 2.24 says that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And I've actually had a guy, you know, at a, at a fair say, I can show you in the Bible where it's not faith alone. I can show you in the Bible right now where it's not faith alone. Okay. And I knew where it was going to take me, James 2.24. And, and that's, man is justified by works, not by faith only. And to his credit, if we're talking about the same justification, by whom, justification by whom, then he's right. 
right? So that's the distinction that we're talking about. We're not talking about justification before God here. We're talking about justification before men. And so hopefully we can, we can kind of prove that, but this is why it causes a problem because James 2.24 says a man is not, is justified by works and not by faith only. Romans 4, 1 through 5, you're not justified by works and you're justified by faith alone. So it seems to contradict exactly what Paul said. This is also a big one. People quote James 2.19, the demons believe and they're not saved. See, it requires more than faith to get saved, they will say. And they use that verse to prove their point. And so these are why we have some of the problems we do. James, with this passage in terms of understanding, James 2.21, Abraham was justified by works versus Romans 4, 1 through 5, Abraham was justified by faith apart from works. And so Paul's really careful to say the justification he's speaking about is apart from works. Part of the thing that we need to do is we need to compare Paul and James and we need to ask some questions that I think are very, very helpful to understand what's going on. It's kind of like, it's kind of like if you've ever been on the, the wrong side of a phone conversation and you kind of think what you, you know, what's going on. But then when you, when they get off the phone and you're like, you're assuming something bad is happening. You're assuming someone's not treating you right. And then they explain what the other person was saying. You get into the full story and you have a, you have context of what was going on and you realize you just misread everything because you only had one side of the story. And so I think a lot of times with the comparison between James and Paul, this is what happens. I think somebody wanting to prove their point will misuse one side of the story to say it's saying something that's not. As we put these two together, I think one of the things that we want to ask, some of the questions we want to ask is, what is the question asked and answered by each of these men? What question was Paul answering? Well, Paul, in terms of justification, was answering the question, how can a person be, be saved? How can somebody be justified before God or declared righteous before God? What was James answering? What was the question James was answering? How can a person, a believer, show he is saved? Or how can a person show his faith? How can, how can he make it visible to others? And one of the things that you notice about the book of James is you will notice that James, in every chapter of the book of James, addresses his readers as brethren. What is that typically an indicator of when we read New Testament epistles? He's talking to believers. Some of the the things we have to understand in context. So if he's questioning their salvation here in James 2, why would he be calling them brethren? He doesn't say, if you're brethren. You know, so he's, he's just talking to believers. And what he's talking to believers about is showing out their faith, living out their faith. That's what he's talking to them about in James 2. So that's the question asked and answered as it relates to the two justifications that that Paul talks about and what James is talking about in James 2. What's the error combated? Well, Paul was combating the error that you have to do good works in order to be saved. Nobody's justified before God by the works of the law, right? We saw that in Galatians 2.16. Obviously see that in Romans. See that in everything, every chance Paul gets to say it, he says it, okay? So that's the error he was combating. Obviously that was huge with his Jewish audience that still wanted to bring the law back in, circumcision, whatever they can grab their hands onto. They were trying to add that to faith alone and Christ alone. And so that's the error that, that Paul was combating. What was the error that James was combating? And this is part of why we want to build this context. 
it's wrong to say that a saved person should not do good works. Nobody should say that works are unnecessary for a believer after they are saved. This is part of God's purpose for believers. We learn from Ephesians 2.10 where God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for what? Well, for good works. Now, why good works? Because they profit people. They profit other men. And so James, he's combating an error. And, and, and we'll see as we build the case, James is writing to displaced Jews. And they've been displaced because of persecution. They were laying low probably due to fear, probably due to poverty, and they weren't exercising their faith in good works. They were just kind of keeping it to themselves. And James is saying, hey guys, you need to live it out. You need to live it out. In fact, what does he say in chapter one? Don't, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Don't just look into the law of liberty and forget what kind of person you are. Take what you learn from the word of God and start putting it into practice. You see this really bleed through the entire epistle. What is the biblical example that Paul cites? Well, Paul cites Abraham's justification before God when he simply believed God's word. And that's in Genesis 15, 6, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what Paul typically goes back to. In fact, James goes there too, but after he's, he's building his case about works. Well, what's the biblical example that James uses? Well, James uses Abraham's justification, I believe, before men. And again, we'll try to continue to prove that out when his faith was tested by God about 40 years later. You notice where Paul goes is Genesis 15. Where does James go? Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Okay. So when was Abraham saved or declared righteous before God? Well, all the way back in Genesis 15. That's what the text says. When James goes to Genesis 22, when he uses a good work to prove that he was quote unquote justified, that should immediately raise questions like, well, what justification is he talking about? Because he was justified back in Genesis 15, six by God. So he must be talking about just justification in a different sense here in James two, if that's the example that he uses. Uh, we also see that James, although Paul doesn't use the example, James uses the example of Rahab the harlot being justified by works. How? When she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Okay, so a visible good work helping these spies escape. But that's not when she was justified before God. In fact, we learned from Joshua 2, the reason she hid the spies is because she'd been waiting for 40 years for Israel to come take her land because she, she had heard about what their God had done. She had already believed in their God. She was already justified before God. And what happened is these works basically showed out that she was righteous, that she had trusted God. And so that's, those are the kind of things that we're looking at. And then each man's perspective, Paul's perspective, he was viewing the guilty sinner who needed to be right with God. And so the unbelieving sinner is in view. James' perspective is he was viewing the believer who needed to demonstrate that his faith was real and in alignment with his action. And so the believers in view. So Paul, when Paul talks about justification, largely he's got the unbelieving sinner in view. When James is talking about justification, he has the believer in view. Justification before who? Before men. Okay, so he said, live out your Christian life so people can see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Matthew five sixteen, And then you've got Titus 3, 8 that says good works. And Paul tells Titus, I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God, believers should maintain good works. Why? Because it's good and profitable for men.
All these things we're trying to put together in terms of context. A couple of more context clues, and I'm going to fly through this. If this is something like you would like these notes, you can just email me and I'll email them to you. I would feel really sorry for for you if you tried to write all this down. This is just a lot. So we're just going to kind of read it, zip through it. This is part of our study tonight. Shoot me an email. I'll get you the rest of it. You're out of space. The book of James, it's very probable that this epistle was addressed to Jewish Christians who were driven from Jerusalem as a result of two separate persecutions. Okay, the first one, and we find this in Acts 7, it's a persecution of Stephen led by Saul, you know, the future apostle Paul. And that happened fairly closely after the the birth of the church, you know, 34 AD-ish. And so we see that in Acts 7. We see kind of the first couple of verses in Acts 8. Obviously, Paul is converted in chapter 9, so we see that initial persecution. But the second wave of persecution was led by Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. Remember, he caught, uh, he got a hold of James and killed James, and then and that got everyone bloodthirsty. So he's, he's looking for more to get, and he's trying to get Peter, and he's trying to get some big names. What ended up happening is this persecution caused many of these Jews to, to leave Jerusalem for their safety. And this is the audience that James is writing to. See, I told you you don't want to write this down. So various members of these scattered congregations may, may have been members of the Jerusalem church before they're scattering. And if that's the case, then James was kind of one of their pastors, okay? So he had great concern for these people. Most likely these believers still from time to time attended business in Jerusalem or attended Jewish national feasts, maybe visiting even family members who had not put their faith in Christ that still lived in the area. And, and so James probably inquired as to their spiritual welfare, probably had conversations with them when they came to town and knew what was going on in these scattered little groups in and around Jerusalem. And so he, based on some of those things, he, he took to this letter method to address his concerns for them. James's audience was an oppressed group, and, and so a series of circumstances culminating at the same time probably prompted this epistle. Again, Herod Agrippa's persecution. And then we also learn in the book of Acts, and again, this will be all in notes if you want them. We won't have time to read it, but a worldwide famine was also prophesied about in Acts 11 by the prophet Agabus and was felt very acutely in and around Jerusalem and Judea. In fact, if you recall, what were some of the things that Paul and Barnabas did on their missionary journeys uh, to Gentile churches? Remember, what were they doing? They were, they were taking collection for the poor saints in, in Judea. Okay, so they're taking collection for these poor saints in Judea. And there's probably a lot of things that contributed to that. You know, we learn in Acts 2 that many people were selling their land and just giving the, the money at the apostles' feet and letting them use. You know, imagine taking all your assets and giving it over. I mean, assets only last so long. And so they probably, you know, spent through that to support people. And then also with the persecution, anytime you're persecuted, you, you may just lose your, your assets. The government may take it over and give it to, you know, their, their buddies, you know, that are on city council or something. I mean, there's, there was a lot of poverty that was inflicted on these people due to these two storms that were coming together at the same time. And so this poverty deepened these particular believers' poverty level. They were, they were you know, thrust out of, of their home and their security. Additionally, the wealthy landowners and Jewish religious aristocracy would certainly have taken Herod Agrippa's attitude toward the Christians, this kind of a hostile attitude toward this sect that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, they would think that was ridiculous. And so they would probably have taken Herod Agrippa's attitude and, and maintained 
favor with the government so that they can maintain their own possessions. What we see and recorded in history is that many believers were robbed of their lands or they were discriminated against in terms of being hired for labor. They were passed over for jobs or not included. And so as a church, they were very suppressed. And that's why you'll see like in the book of James, one of the things that he's, he's correcting them on is, uh, you know, if a rich person walks into your assembly, don't treat them any different than a poor person. Cause they kind of saw, Ooh, man, daddy Warbucks just walked in. Like, let's roll out the red carpet for him. Let's put him right up front. Let's I'll massage his feet. You massage his back and let's, let's keep this guy around. Cause he could help us, you know, kind of deal. And, but you can see why they were really going through a lot. You can also see why they were starting to get a little gun shy, you know, just kind of timid regarding the exercise of their faith. Many of them believed it was better probably just to stay below the radar. And they had adopted somewhat of that attitude. And so you, you see all throughout the epistle, James is like urging them, like, live out your faith. You know, this is important. Live it out. Don't just, don't just stay under the radar. Don't just get under the house and wait for the storm to blow over. Their immaturity as believers was rising to the surface even more just due to the trials testing the worldwide famine. And additionally, because money was tight, they were clinging to whatever money they had. And thus one commentator said, under financial pressure, people tend to hold orthodox belief, but also to grasp tightly to whatever money they have. So they could, you know, they could pass a theology test, but it's not really, <laughs> it's not really getting into their life any, right? They're, they're keeping a hold of their wallet. And so one of the main major problems in the church was a failure on the part of many to live what they profess to believe. And so James in his epistles describing a, a belief or a faith that acts, putting feet on our faith, this epistle sternly insist upon Christian practice consistent with Christian belief. And then it heaps scathing contempt upon all empty profession and administers a stinging rebuke to the reader's worldliness. You know, their method of protecting themselves was, well, just don't get noticed. Stay below the radar. We saw what happened to those guys in Jerusalem. Let's just kind of get through life. And so it started impacting the way that they were living out their Christian life. And then this is really interesting as, as it relates to the context and the, and the thrust of the epistle. There are 62 imperatives, commands in the book of James. That is, if you average that out over the course of the book, it's one command every 1.7 verses. Okay. That's a lot of instruction. That's, that is, and I'll, and I'll be honest, I think that's why this book is a very popular book in a lot of Sunday school classes around the country because it's like you're telling people what to do. You know, that's what a lot of, a lot of Sunday schools gravitate toward that because it's, it's real easy to kind of talk about commands and what we should be doing. And that's, but, but you can get a sense from, hopefully from that background, what is James' intention with this group? What is he trying to you know, accomplish. And, and he's trying to, he's trying to spur them on into continuing to live out their Christian life. We get into chapter two in this passage and I, and you know, that's really hard. Like when you're talking to somebody that's already kind of got their mind made up on this passage, it's really hard to get the audience with them to, to provide that context. Cause it's so crucial in understanding, but, but even again, look at the beginning of verse 14, what does it profit my brethren? Okay. When does it profit my brethren? He's talking to believers, not questioning their salvation here. And that's how many people will teach this passage is, is that he's questioning 
their salvation or he's basically saying that if, if your faith doesn't have works, then, then maybe you're not saved. And that's how a lot of people would take this passage. I don't believe he's teaching that at all. And so let's just keep going through. We're going to define some of our terms. Um, in verse 14, he uses the word save. And we talked about this one last week. Sozo is the Greek verb. And that's what it means. It's, you know, uh, rescued from danger. Saved from what? You could ask. And so we talked last week about the three tenses of salvation. And I would just make the argument that he's talking about second tense salvation here. Sanctification, Christian growth, walking in faith. Can an inactive faith save you? Sanctification-wise, from the power of sin. Will you grow spiritually if your faith is inactive? And the answer is no. You, you won't. You know, that's part of the purpose of what God is, is wanting to accomplish in the believer's life. But it's not talking about can that kind of faith save you from hell? What saves you from hell is faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a done deal. Once he's paid the penalty for your sins, there's no penalty left to be paid. So he's not talking about that. He's talking to believers. And so when we look at believers, and we'll talk more about this when we get into verse 14. Also in verses 14 and 16, I think another key word is profit. It means to heap up, to increase. It means to provide an advantage. What this is going to tell us is that faith without works does not benefit others. Well, does that, does that make sense? I mean, I, that should make sense. He's going to give an example. And basically what it's saying is it doesn't practically, it's not practically beneficial to others or the one with the faith. In fact, if, if you're the believer who's, who's trusted in Christ and you're not exercising good works, you're not going to benefit from that either. Is it, you're not going to gain any profit from that as well. You know, you're not going to bear fruit that brings glory to God. You're not going to have potential rewards. You'll miss out in the future um, at the Bema. And so there's no profit for you as well, but there's definitely not profit for those around you. You know, I can be theologically correct. I can pass all the tests, but if my neighbor needs a hand or there's a good work presents itself and I shy away from it constantly, I'm not profiting anybody on a, on a practical level. That's, I think, is a key word. Another key word um, that's brought out a lot is, is the, the word dead. And it's used three times in our passage. And the definition itself means dead or lifeless. And one of the things that we have to understand in the Bible that death in the Bible always means separation. Okay, it's separated. When you physically die, your, your soul and spirit is separated from your physical body. When you spiritually die, then you're, you're separated from God from eternity, okay, for eternity. Death always means separation. And so what is it saying? Well, I just trying to take the meaning of the words. I believe it's saying that faith without works is separated from the way God designed the believer's life to be. It's separated from God's full purpose for the believer because Again, Ephesians 2, 8, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. We're not, it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one may boast, right? We don't, we, we don't want to boast about it. But then Ephesians 2, 10, for we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're his workmanship. And so there's a purpose that God has when he saves the believer and he wants the faith coming together with works because as we're going to learn in, even in James 2, that in Abraham's case, in verse 22, it says, do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect, complete. That's the completion that God is looking to accomplish in each one of our lives. That's complete fulfillment. Faith without works, it's separated from that complete fulfillment. And that's what we're, I believe, talking about here in James 2. A couple more observations, and then we'll just, we'll jump into verse 14 and work our way through. So again, notice the word, uh, the use of the word show. 
in verse 18 and C in verses 22 and 24. Again, does God need, do we need to show God good works or does God need to see good works to justify us? No, he can see right into our heart and know the moment we put our faith in Christ and then he justifies us. But do men need to see good works to declare us righteous, to, to benefit from what? Yeah, they do. You can say, hey man, yeah, I got food in here, but good luck. You know, I hope you get filled out there and oh, you're cold too. Man, I hope you find a blanket out there. Man, good luck. And, but if you need a theological answer, I can write it down for you. But you know, it's like, no, the dude needs a blanket. <laughs> That's, that would be a good work that needs to be exercised. So notice that show and see. And then also um, notice that Abraham was credited righteousness simply when he believed, verse 23, but that James says that through his works, the scripture was fulfilled or borne out before our, our eyes. And so the justification, this declaration of righteousness was, was borne out in Abraham's life. And what's really, what's really fascinating is if you trace the story of Abraham and you go from Genesis 15 to where James goes, Genesis 22, there's a lot that happens in between there. And much of it's not good for Abraham, right? Chapter 16, what happens in chapter 16? Anyone remember Genesis 16? That's, that's the whole Hagar and Ishmael thing. Somewhere in there, I can't remember if it's, it's 17 is circumcision. I think 18, he pawns Sarah off, you know, as, as his sister, right? He puts him in a king's harem. You know, and so, so on and so forth. I mean, all the way through, you know, the guy is saved in Genesis 15, but James has to go all the way out to 22, 40 years later to say, see, this is where it all came together for him. And so it wasn't like he questioned Abraham's salvation. In fact, I, I like to have fun with, with the guys in, in Liberia because this question comes up a lot. I said, you know, if a guy told you that he was saved, that he put his faith in Christ, but then he committed adultery on his wife and, and had, had a baby with the woman he committed adultery with. And then he made his wife go into a prostitution ring. And I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to bring it modern day example here. And, but he said, he, he said he saved. Would you guys think he was saved or, or lost? He's lost. Like, you know, and many of them was, oh, he's not a believer at all. He's not. And basically, we're, we're describing Abraham. We're describing the life of Abraham there. And yet, it wasn't that he got saved in chapter 22. It's just that his faith was born out in 22, and they, were, they visibly saw it. In fact, when you look at 22, it's just interesting. All these little comments, but Abraham says to his servants, he goes, the lad and I are going up to that hill over there. So they could see. They could see the hill. You know, they could see. Uh, conceptually what was going on. And so they saw Abraham willing to sacrifice his son. And they said, that's a righteous man. He believes, he trusts God. And you see that, that was a men declaring Abraham righteous. And that's James's whole point is there was a visible act that allowed men to declare him righteous. Now he was declared righteous before God back in Genesis 15, but it sure didn't look like it <laughs> for a while. That's kind of the whole point. All right, verse 14. So again, notice he's writing to brethren. He's writing to believers. Let's read verse 14 again. What does it profit my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can faith save him? All right. So notice that we're talking about profit here. Okay. That's the question. Verse 14. What does it profit my brethren? But, but profit to whom? 
darkness. Again, who's he talking? Profit to whom? Who's going to profit from this? Well, the person with this kind of faith would profit from it. In other words, they'd be growing spiritually. Their, their life would be in line with God's purpose. But clearly he's talking about other people. He's about to give an example for other people. So clearly he's talking about a faith that profits, a faith that works, that profits other people. Someone says continually, this is a present tense verb, continually has faith. And so this person is constantly talking about their faith. They're constantly putting it forth but there's no action uh, incorporated with that, okay? In other words, they're theologically correct, but they're, they're not living a life of good works. And so this, this question is, can that kind of faith save him? And the implied answer in the Greek is no. And so this is where a lot of people get confused. And we kind of talked about this a, a few minutes ago, but is it talking about salvation from hell here? And that's, that's where typically people go. Because now, if that's what it's talking about, then we have to go back to Romans 4 and 5 and we have to reinterpret that whole thing because, and say something to the effect, well, when Paul said you're justified apart from works, what he really meant was you're justified plus works. And see, clearly you have to go reinterpret a lot of places or you have to figure out how they fit together because we, we believe they don't contradict itself. When he's talking to believers and he's talking about salvation, present tense, can that faith kind of faith save him right now? We have to go back to, again, the three tenses of salvation. What, sal- what salvation is he talking about? Save from what here? And believe it's a, in a sanctification sense. How can we tell? Well, first, James is talking to believers, and we know that believers are being saved from sin's power presently, right? They've already been saved from sin's penalty. To imply that a faith requires works to be saved from the penalty of sin implies that the penalty of sin is not only death, but a certain amount of good works, right? And, and you'll never find that in the Bible. Good works don't pay the penalty for sin. Death pays the penalty for sin. And if Christ paid that penalty, then no penalty remains. So we're not talking about salvation from, from hell. We're talking about salvation from sin's power. And so the use of the words beneficial, profit, useful, useless, we'll see in the text, dead, showing, seeing faith through works, all communicate tangible and observable things. It can't be salvation from hell because the penalty for sin is death. Again, good works do not solve this penalty. And so just trying to put these together, how do these fit together? And that's what we're trying to do because clearly James and Paul didn't write to conflict with each other. They're approaching issues from a couple of different angles. And that's what we're trying to to recognize as we go through. And so this is clearly talking about second tense salvation, being saved from sin's power in our daily life. So in other words, this type of faith, will not enable you to grow spiritually. If you have an inactive faith that doesn't walk by faith and exercise the good works that are laid before you, you're not going to grow spiritually. If you're just in a bunker mentality, you know, just stay below the radar and it's not going to benefit those that you come in contact with. You know, if we had a church full of people who refused to do good works, we'd feel it right away. You would notice it right away you would start realizing that you were benefiting all along from somebody's good works. You, you would realize it. it's funny. It's like when you lose the, the function of something, you realize how much you need it, right? Like, like I remember one time I jammed my thumb really bad and even trying to get the milk out of the refrigerator was like a challenge. You know, I had to go left-handed and that was kind of weird for a while. And I, you know, like even getting dressed or going to, I mean, anything that involved the, in the thumb, you realize how important. And so the same way, if, the, if good works just shut down in this church overnight, 
we, we would all be the worse off for it. We would lose a bunch of profit and usefulness that other people are contributing. And so that's obviously the goal of the Christian life, not only to do good works to one another, that's why we have all the one another's as it relates to the body of Christ, but also good works to those outside of the church that they might see and glorify our God in heaven and and be drawn to what's going on in our life so we have an opportunity to share the gospel. So all of these things are important and they contribute to our spiritual growth. I, I think when you just really back it up and just try to understand the overall context that good works don't save you, they don't deliver you from the penalty of sin, good works don't also sanctify you, but spirit produce good works do. It's walking by means of the spirit is what grows you spiritually, but God uses that mechanism to, to execute good works through you. And he wants to accomplish those too, but just doing good works doesn't sanctify you either, right? That's, that's legalism. We can put together a list. And so it's, it's that combination of spirit empowered, God resourced believers are dependent upon the Lord exercising good works and all of those things come together for our spiritual growth and for God's purposes. This type of faith will not produce rewards at the judgment seat of Christ because there's no works to reward. You know, that's, that's what's evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, good works. So if you, you shut the faucet off on good works in your life because you're going to stay below the radar, you, you've suffered persecution, you've already lost your land, you got no money, you're like, you know, this Christian thing is great, I'm glad I'm going to heaven, but man, I, I'm staying below the radar because this has really been too hard. This life is just too hard. And that's kind of what James's readers were doing, some of them. And so he's trying to encourage them. And, and so that's why he, he says, what does it profit, my brethren? Who are you benefiting? Definitely not yourself, definitely not other people. If you say you have faith, but you don't have works, can faith save you? In other words, can, can you grow spiritually this way? And the answer is no, you can't. And so he goes on to give an example in verses 15 and 16. And we've, we've kind of talked about that. But if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? And again, the answer is it doesn't profit them. You know, that's, that would be really ridiculous. I, I'd really hate to be on the other side of that door going to a believer and saying, man, I, I'm not asking to sleep in your house. I'll, I'll sleep outside, but do you have a blanket I can borrow? And they're like, man, go and be filled, be warmed. See you in the morning, you know, if you don't freeze. <laughs> so, and this is what he's talking about. It's just the, the ridiculousness of saying that you've trusted in Christ and then not being willing to, to help somebody. It's, it's, it's uh, there's no profit there. And it's lacking God's purpose for the believer. And so verse 17, he makes his first conclusion. Thus, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is another one of those verses there where people say, see, if you don't have works, you never had faith to begin with. That's kind of how this verse is interpreted by those who believe this is teaching that either you're not saved or you never were saved or, you, you know, some might even say you lost your salvation. But remember again, dead, the normal biblical definition for the word dead is separation. It's not ni- annihilation or non-existence. In fact, I would never call you guys up and say, man, I got some bad news. You know, this, this podium died last night. It's dead. Now, why would I, ne- I mean, yeah, I know that's kind of silly. Why, but why would I never say that? Why, would, why could I never say that this podium died? 
because it was never alive, okay? So the very fact that you can say faith without works is dead implies what? That faith did exist at one point, that they are believers, that faith existed. To be able to say it's dead implies that it's alive. It was alive, okay? So again, we're just kind of thinking through the arguments here and just how easy it is to kind of just rip these verses out of context. But what James is not saying is that this type of faith without works implies that their faith does not exist, okay? To, to say that it's dead doesn't imply that it exists. You know, somebody dies and you say, yeah, so-and-so died. It doesn't mean they didn't exist, right? Their body, they're separated from their physical body now. Then their physical life is ended. But it doesn't mean, oh yeah, they never existed. And that's not what saying something's dead uh, means and many people interpret it that way. This it doesn't. Uh, James is not saying that this type of faith without works implies that the person has lost their faith. It doesn't imply that this type of faith without works implies that that somebody never had it. In fact, if he wanted to communicate that this type of faith without works proved that this person's faith did not exist, he could have just said that. You ever wondered that? Like he could have said it that way. <laughs> that not faith without works is dead, but faith without works proves it never existed. Right, that's, he could have said it that way, but it doesn't say that. He uses this exact wording. And so if faith is dead, then it had to have existed. You do not describe things that do not exist as having died or being dead. And so what James is saying is that faith by itself without works is dead or separated, but again, separated from what? And we've talked about this, but let's just go through the list. Separated from God's purpose for the Christian life. What is God's purpose for the Christian life? Well, he created you in Christ Jesus for good works that he predetermined that you should walk in them. So there's a purpose for why God saved us. And so when you live a life of faith without works, you're not fulfilling that purpose. You're separated from God's purpose. Secondly, you're separated from the benefit in our daily lives that fulfilling God's purpose brings to us personally. There's a, there's a certain sense of, uh, of accomplishment and enjoyment to know that you're fulfilling God's will. And so I think you're separated from that. I think also in the future, you're separate from the future benefit of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Because what's going on at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, your good works are being evaluated. And so if you shut that faucet off, you don't have good works to be evaluated. You're going to miss out on potential reward there. And so that's what I believe he's speaking about here. And so as we we'll jump down to verse 20, and he uses this word useless. And so James is going to further strengthen his point with two Old Testament examples. And so we've got really quite a contrast. We've got Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, highly esteemed. And then we've got Rahab, a harlot, you know, two. Two different contrasting examples that he uses. And so in verse 20, we read, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He calls his readers foolish or empty. The, the objector to James' message on works is someone who is practically useless to himself and to others like a cup with no drink in it. This is kind of this empty, hollow man that doesn't benefit anybody, right? If, if you're thirsty and you're out working and, and you say, can you get me something to drink? And I bring you a cup without anything in it. It's useless. It's, it's hollow. It's not, it, there's no profit to you if I do that. So faith without works is dead. Um, actually, this word is not your typical word for dead. It's, it's better translated useless. James uses a different word here than what he used in verse 17. Useless just means not at work. It's idle. It's inactive. It's slothful. It was used of money that was yielding no interest or a field lying fallow and not benefiting with crops. 
Second Peter uses the word barren. It's the same word. Use, uselessness is likened to unfruitfulness. And so by dichotomy, the opposite must be true. Usefulness equals fruitfulness. And so what he's basically saying here is, if we can summarize it, is faith without works is useless or it's, it's not going to bear fruit. There's no, you don't have any fruit bearing. There's no production here. There's no benefit. Verse 21. Again, sorry, we're kind of moving quick here. But verse 21 was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And so this is kind of bringing us full circle now back to the word justified. That's kind of what we're trying to look at tonight. And so justified by works. And one of the things I want you to notice as we look at verse 21, notice he doesn't say that Abraham was justified by faith and works there, just works. The people that would teach this, this passage differently would always say that you're justified by faith and works or faith plus works. But notice that's not what Paul says uh, in verse 21. You know, he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see, again, you see James's focus is on living out works a faith that produces works, but he's, he's talking about a different kind of justification here. If it's justification by works, we're not talking about justification before God. We're talking about justification before men. Men see works. Men have to see works in order to declare another person righteous. And that is James's whole point is he wants these believers living out the Christian life in visible, manifested works. Now, who justified Abraham? Well, definitely not Abraham, because this verb here is in the passive voice. Okay, verse 21, what it says, was not Abraham our father justified? So it's not Abraham justifying himself. It's somebody justifying him. And most of the time, as we've talked about, we view justification as God doing the justification. But the other option would be that man was, was justifying him. They, they saw him do this and they declared him righteous. There was a, a profitable or usefulness. And so when was Abraham justified according to verse 21? Well, look at verse 21. It was when he offered Isaac, his son on the altar. That's when he was justified according to this verse. Well, when did God justify Abraham? That happened in Genesis 22. When did God justify Abraham? Not in Genesis 22, back in Genesis 15. So we're not talking about justification before God here. We're talking about justification before men. And that's coming full circle and just putting this argument together. And so this gives us a hint as to who justified Abraham when he was willing to sacrifice his son. Again, God justified Abraham simply when he believed. This all happened in Genesis 15, 6, before Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac some 40 years later. So if God justified Abraham in Genesis 15 when he simply believed God, who justified Abraham when he sacrificed Isaac? Well, notice verse 22. Do you see? Again, James is emphasizing what his readers can see in terms of justification of Abraham. See that in verse 22? Do you see speaking to his readers, that faith was working together with his works and by works, faith was made perfect or made complete. And so again, this indicates that it's a human justification, a justification before men, not a divine justification. God sees faith, does not need to see works. Man cannot see faith and needs to see works. That's the gist or the distinction between Paul and James. All right. Let's just continue here. Let's fill in a couple more blanks in our notes and 
we obviously we won't spend as the same amount of time on the rest of these because some of this is going to be repeated kind of stuff, but justification before self. This is when you self-justify, but it's obtained when a person attempts to make themselves look righteous to someone, even someone else, even if they may not be. Okay, they're, they're trying to look good or justify themselves. So Luke 10, 25 through 29, 16 through 14 through 15 in Luke gives some passages about self-justification. And we won't look at those tonight just due to time. Let's fill out the rest of this. But justification before God is based solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Justification before men is based upon a person's good works. Justification before self is based upon a person's good works, or at least the works they can convince you that they've done or that they're doing. Justification before God is obtained at a moment in time when one believes in Jesus and can never be lost by one's behavior. Okay, Romans 4, 5, to him who does not work but believes, God justifies the ungodly. Justification before men, on the other hand, is, is also obtained at a moment in time what is that moment of time? Well, when one sees or hears about a good work, but can be lost due to lack of ongoing good works or lack of knowledge of ongoing good works. In other words, you might think I'm a righteous guy because I mowed your lawn, but if three months from now you're busy and I stop mowing your lawn, <laughs> you're like, well, he was a good guy. I don't know what happened to him. You know, he doesn't talk to me anymore. You know, so it's, it's kind of this ongoing idea. Justification before self is obtained at a moment in time when one convinces another of their own righteousness, but also can be lost if the other person is no longer convinced. You may be able to convince somebody you're a good guy, but once they are unconvinced, you would lose that justification, right? You would lose that ability to convince them that you are righteous. Number four, justification before God. It's needed to spend eternity in heaven, have one's sins forgiven, and be born into the family of God. And so we've got some verses there for you to confirm that. Justification before men is needed to be viewed favorably by others in our sphere of influence. Justification before self is also needed to be viewed favorably by others in our sphere of influence. Wanting others to declare us righteous, it's, it's needed. Uh, good works. Number five, justification before God is the only 100% accurate justification in the world. The only 100% accurate justification. God makes no mistakes, knows who has and who has not put their faith in his son and his finished work. Justification before men is accurate sometimes and inaccurate at other times. Many people are fooled by others' good works and do not realize the bad motives behind those good works. Sometimes motives are evil or self-serving, even though the works appear to be good. How many times have you thought somebody was a good person and then you find out what they're really like behind the scenes, right? And this is what we're talking about. Many people you know, like even in churches that I've been in, people will, and, and because maybe I've, I've been a pastor and an elder, I'm kind of maybe privy to some behind the scenes information that not everyone's privy to, but people will come up and say, man, that guy's a great guy or man, that lady's, you know, a great lady, really spiritual. And it's like, you know, it's like, well, I can't tell you that they're not, you know, <laughs> but it's like, you really don't have an accurate justification there. 
Okay, this is the, this is why this is the only 100% accurate justification because God's the one doing the justifying. Men can be right about you. Men can be wrong about you. You know, mankind can be. Justification before self is is another one. Sometimes accurate, sometimes inaccurate. Again, many people deceive themselves as to their true motives for declaring themselves righteous. You know, many people think that they've got the purest motives on earth for doing something, and and it's not. And they've deceived themselves into saying that what they do is, is only for others good or there's no self-interest in it and they deceive themselves and they would, but they would declare themselves as a righteous person. Obviously Job is a good example of that. You can kind of see that in his life in those verses. And then number six, uh, justification before God is regarding one's permanent standing or position before God. Okay, it's a permanent standing or position before God. Justification before men is regarding one's present standing or temporary position before men. Again, if the good works are not ongoing, pretty quickly men are going to stop saying that you're a good guy, good guy or a good person if the works don't keep going. And then also with self-justification is regarding one's present standing or temporary position before men. So a lot of similarities between justification before men and justification before self. Because when we self-justify, it's typically to convince others that we're righteous so that they will declare us righteous. But again, that was really just an introduction to the whole concept of justification. And just recognizing that the word itself doesn't mean saved from hell, that we, we want to look at the context when we look at that word in scripture and just ask the question, justified by whom? Who's, who's doing the justification here? Is it God? Is it man? Is it ourselves? Who's doing the justifying? Again, just wanted to look at that tonight, especially as we get into next week talking about justification versus sanctification and the distinctions that we see there. So let's close with a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, I do thank you tonight for your word and just grateful for the passage that James wrote and really just what his emphasis was. It's, it's an emphasis that we need uh, to be encouraged and challenged with that, Lord, we want lives that, that please you. We want to live lives that honor you. We want to grow spiritually. We want to walk in fellowship with you. We want to exercise and execute the good works that you've designed for each one of us. We want to fulfill your purposes. We're grateful for that encouragement tonight. And I just pray for each one here that you'd give us a safe ride home, uh, just an enjoyable week of relying upon you. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.